coming up. My guess is somebody in that man's life knew about his anger, um, knew about how he felt about Eden. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Everybody ready? Okay, I'd like to uh, start off by welcoming everyone and thank you for coming this morning. <clears throat> Yesterday we uh, experienced a tragic event that uh, we honestly thought we would never see in our county. At 6.51 p.m. on June 2nd, the 911 center in Story County, Iowa, began receiving calls from individuals at a church in the city of Ames. The callers reported that someone had been in the parking lot with a gun and that two individuals had been shot. 22-year-old Eden Montang and 21-year-old Vivian Flores would not survive. Unfortunately, this tragic event took the lives of two young females. The shooter was also pronounced dead at the scene. The shooter would eventually be identified by investigators as an ex-boyfriend of one of the victims. This shooting is a result of a domestic situation between the shooter and Eden Montag. The shooting is classified as a targeted act of violence. Whitlatched approached Eden in the parking lot armed with a nine millimeter pistol. Well, we all know this is a uh, very tragic event for our community, but I think also nationwide as we uh, experience uh, violent uh, incidents nationwide and it only seems to increase. Mary Sugden is joining us from Local 5 News in Des Moines, Iowa. Mary, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been reporting on cases of domestic violence in Iowa, and I know your recent coverage has been spurred by the killing of two students at Iowa State University in early June. Can you walk us through what happened in that case? Yeah, so this was a shooting that happened outside of a church in Ames. We know this was just ahead of a youth Bible study. The females were at the church to to attend the SALT Company program. This is a program of Bible study, uh, commingling Iowa State University students along with high school students. In the auditorium, there were just over 80 uh, students in attendance. Um, And the two victims, uh, one was Eden Montang, the other Vivian Flores, And we know that the gunman was actually in a past relationship with Eden Montang, one that had dissolved maybe about a month or so prior um, to this shooting. And so what officers were able to describe to us is this was really a domestic violence situation. Um, The shooter ambushed the two women at the church. There was actually a third woman with them who was able to get to safety and kind of shield herself and get get away, essentially. But that this really was a, a targeted ambush attack of domestic violence. So what happens when police arrive on the scene that Thursday night? What all do they discover? So what they discovered were three um, deceased people at this, outside this church, two of those being the females, Eden and Vivian, and then one of those being the shooter, Jonathan Whitlatch, who officers described had a self-inflicted gunshot wound. You mentioned the Story County Sheriff's Office described this as the result of a domestic situation. Do we have any other information on that? What have you been able to learn? So what we learned is actually just a few days before this shooting happened, Whitlatch had actually been arrested for both harassment and impersonating an officer. On May 31st, 2022, Whitlatch was charged by the Ames Police Department 
and ultimately arrested in Boone County for harassment, third degree, and impersonating a public official. Both of these charges were directly related to Eden. Whitlatch posted bond on these charges and was scheduled to have an initial appearance on June 10th. And when we tracked down that narrative, that com criminal complaint, what we found is that he had been harassing Eden at her workplace, calling, uh, impersonating, pretending to be an officer, and saying that he had information about Eden and a different relationship she was in and that he needed to speak to someone there. Uh, the place that she worked actually was able to record those calls. And that's, I guess, when Eden, you know, sought the help of law enforcement, turned that over to them. And in those weeks, they were working to get, officers told me they were working to get cell phone records and, and really build their case. And it was finally that day that they were able to arrest him. But what we know looking at court documents is that he was able to immediately postpone and was released. What about this case made you decide to look at this issue of domestic violence in Iowa more broadly? And when you decided to do that, where did you start? So I think, you know, you have a case like this, there's a lot of questions from the community of, well, there was this history of potential harassment, potential abuse here. How is this person able to potentially own firearms? And so what we did is we reached out to the Iowa Attorney General's office. They've got a crime victim assistance division, and they have extensive data on domestic violence. It actually stretches back into 1995. And so what they were able to show us is that since that time, since 1995, up until about March of this year, there's been 365 domestic violence deaths in the state. And then if we expand that even further, when we look specifically at women, it's more than a third of those women were in the process of or actually had already left their abuser. So what advocates tell us is that period of leaving and trying to get out of that relationship is really kind of the most dangerous period of time for these survivors. Something else you looked into is how those killed in a domestic violence situation are often killed. What did you learn about that? So what we learned is those killed, uh, the majority of them, over 54% were killed with a firearm, were killed with a gun. That, that doesn't even count the number of times that uh, the batterer would use the gun simply to threaten or intimidate. And something else that advocates really pointed to is that even without um, the abuser using a gun to kill them, there's also this avenue of coercive control which really means that you're using the gun to intimidate your victim. It could be you're just holding it in your hand while having a conversation, telling the person what you want them to do. And so even without there being reported deaths potentially, that this number could be a lot higher as far as how many people are actually just being intimidated with a gun in their own home by their partner. One of the advocates you spoke to is Sandy Tibbetts Murphy, who's the division director for the Crime Victim Assistance Division of the Iowa Attorney General's Office. And in your interview, she talked about something called the boyfriend loophole. Can you define that for us? What is the so-called boyfriend loophole? So this is a loophole. Federal statute dictates that if there's a domestic violence conviction or something like an order of protection, the abuser would be restricted from owning a firearm or purchasing or owning ammunition. But this only applies if the victim is the abuser's spouse, their previous spouse, they live together, or if that couple shares a child. So essentially, it doesn't apply to people who are just dating, just in that type of relationship. So if there is a, a domestic violence conviction or a protection order, but unfortunately, the relationship involved is a boyfriend-girlfriend, 
the federal prohibition on firearms does not apply to that situation. As you laid out, this is a gap in federal law. What do efforts to close that gap look like either at the federal level or at the state and local levels where you work in Iowa? What Tibbetts Murphy told us is that there was an effort in the last federal session to really clamp down on that gap, but ultimately that fell short. Um, But what they also would like to see is not only closing that gap, but there needs to be something on the back end of it. So if we say that those convicted in these domestic violence incidents or with orders of protection, that there needs to be something that dictates how those weapons then get out of their hands. Does that look like officers going to the home? Should that be a voluntary turnover? And that's something that they still see as another gap on the backside, that even if we say these violent abusers shouldn't have firearms, there's nothing really dictating on what that would look like for them to turn them over. In the last session in D.C., there was an effort by lawmakers to close this loophole. It fell short, which is why advocates are pushing for change on the local or state level to prevent abusers falling through the cracks. We just, we don't have a consistent way of getting that vital information to the people who need it to make those kinds of decisions. Going back to this Iowa State case, is this a case that the kind of legislation being considered to close the boyfriend loophole would have changed or would have hopefully prevented? Did the alleged perpetrator in that case have a domestic violence conviction on his record or a protection order in place? So what we learned from the Story County Sheriff's Office, they were under the understanding that Eden had been in the process of getting an order of protection. And again, we know that she had filed something to get those files or those charges of harassment and impersonating an officer for those to move forward. Um, And we do know, looking back at his case, that last year he was charged with assault with intent to commit sexual abuse. And that was an incident that happened in a bar where he allegedly was putting his hands down a woman's pants in the bar. So we do kind of have this history of some questionable behavior. But when we look specifically at Eden, we can see that she was reaching out and going through those processes of protecting herself. So what advocates say is there really was this chance that if a stronger law was in place, this could have flagged. But again, it really takes that back end of this to see how he would have turned weapons over. Um, They also were really wanting to hammer down that there was a good chance that the suspect had told people how he was feeling, had told friends or family or passerbys of how he felt toward Eden. And those people likely knew he had guns so that this also comes on the community to really be advocates for each other and to watch out for those red flags when we see them. My guess is somebody in that man's life knew about his anger, um, knew about how he felt about Eden, about the ending of the relationship. And it's at that time that we, as the public, as friends and family, need to step up and and notify people. If the hope is that closing the boyfriend loophole would prevent this subset of cases where there was a prior domestic violence conviction or a protection order in place, what other ideas did you hear from advocates about preventing other homicide cases that don't fall into that specific subset whether that be other legislative solutions, actions that we as individuals can take, things to be aware of, red flags to be aware of. I know there's a much bigger conversation here, but what other ideas came up through the course of your reporting? I think something that we're seeing a lot of in the domestic violence community right now is this idea of trying to put all of the services for these survivors in one place. In some other cities, they're called something like a peace center or a family center to where survivors can go and in a one-stop shop really get that order of protection 
uh, talk to a judge, maybe get childcare, get a, a place to stay, be put in a shelter. Because when we look at the way that we're pushing na- uh, survivors to navigate the system to safety, there's a lot of gaps just when you look at, you know, from safety point to safety point, And a lot of, in other words, ways that their abuser can still get to them as they're navigating their way to safety. So I think when you look at different communities, there's this effort to try to really understand everything from the survivor's perspective and understand how we can better serve so that there's not so many little gaps every step along the way. Before I let you go, I'll mention the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. You can text START to 88788. Mary Sugden with We Are Iowa Local 5 News. Thanks for coming on to talk about this important issue. Thanks for having me, Reid. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. Next week, we'll be back to our usual daily schedule with a new episode every day of the week, Monday through Friday. Until then, you can find all of our other shows at vaultstudios.com. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.